When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester. The XS Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. XS Manchester. Hello, here we go with another XS Long Player, another classic album going deep and discovering some of the untold stories, fascinating facts, and insider knowledge when it comes to its creation. The album I'm talking about today on the XS Long Player was one that came up as a suggestion after I did the episode on The Farm's Spartacus. Someone got in touch with me and said, how about you do Jesus Jones and Doubt? Not only is that a great idea, but also it's a fantastic demonstration of how you can suggest your favourite albums get covered on this podcast. Just get in contact. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Jim Bob. You can leave a review to this podcast with your suggestions or if you're listening on spotify there's kind of a Q&A function you can do the same things there loads of ways to get in touch but today's episode is all about jesus jones doubt released in 1991 the band's second album and mike edwards is talking me through it mike how you doing pleasure to meet you thanks for joining me on the excess long player pleasure nice to be here so we're talking today about Doubt, which is your second album, the follow-up to Liquidizer. And listening back to this album, it instantly sounds like an LP that is deliberately trying to be slightly more expansive, to go through more gears than the debut album was, perhaps. Was that the ambition? Was it to stretch yourselves a little bit more creativity than you did with the first album? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what we want to do. Two aspects to that. Firstly, yeah, as you say, we wanted to do new things, stuff that we hadn't done before. Um, we were trying to be progressive, if that's not a, a terribly loaded term to use. But we also wanted to be commercially successful. And we'd kind of um, come close three times in a row with the album before, but not made it. We got frustratingly just outside the top 40 repeatedly. And with doubt, we wanted to see if we could find the holy grail, which is commercial success with something creative and exciting and new and that's exactly what that was about not always a easy thing to do is it balance creativity with success hence the the title doubt because i wasn't entirely sure we were doing the right thing i had lots of doubts about not so much about what we'd done but what we were about to do um and so it, it was the perfect title i i really wasn't sure at all so yeah there you go perfect title with second albums, I think in general, the creative process tends to be a little bit different. You go from having years working and crafting songs to suddenly being on tour buses, in hotels, writing between other projects and TV appearances and all that kind of stuff. Did that make that creative process, the kind of formation of these songs, very different for you? And did that impact the end result? 
Well, your your kind of supposition is off in the first place. Um, We were releasing songs so quickly for the first album that a a lot of it, uh, much of that first album, Liquidizer, was written in the morning, recorded in in the studio in the afternoon. It was the time when, to try and boost sales, the record company would put as many new songs on a single as they could. So I just had to be writing, writing, writing all the time. It was a very rush process. So that thing about having, you know, uh, the, your your first 18, 19, 20 years to come up with the first album, then two years to do the second album, right. definitely not true. It just, if if anything, actually, as you started touring, it, be, it became easier because there was more time. You know, you, you had kind of eight hours sitting on a plane or, or, or much of the day spent driving from one venue to another. It became easier to have the time, the mental space to come up with ideas and and to work them through, Um, especially since a lot of music technology at the time, it it was becoming possible to make music when you were traveling. You didn't have to have a big studio sat at home anymore. So um, no, the process, if anything, the process was a little bit easier with the second album than the first because we weren't in such a god awful hurry. That's interesting what you say about technology becoming transportable because, I mean, compared to where we are now in terms of technology, I imagine it still was fairly difficult to do what you were doing in terms of technology because this is an album that is quite advanced for the early 90s, I think. So I assume the songs in their genesis must have started in a fairly stripped-back, almost traditional way before kind of growing and being layered and that element happens in the studio later? Um, again, more, more kind of the reverse. I'd work on the technological side of it because you could, um, well, on the road, you know, you, you could sequence bass lines and drums uh, and, and that kind of thing in a hotel room. But it's really when I got home and I could get the guitars sure. out and plug those into a, a kind of home studio. Um, that's when things got fleshed out later on. So, so much a doubt. And certainly the album afterwards, Perverse, was written in the basic electronic or the electronic thing was the, the backbone of it uh, and then the guitars and such like came later i actually you know I, can, I think when i think back to doubt maybe slightly less so there are a lot of very guitar led tracks and i suspect they came up kind of in those gaps between tours which became decreasing as, as we went on this album was for me, and it's, it's difficult or it's easy rather to forget exactly where albums fall in a timeline you look back on kind of like music and you just accept it in the the modern environment rather than thinking about the environment in which it was made. But I think this album sits kind of right at the beginning of that British alternative dance music scene. And I guess in that sense, Jesus Jones was a pioneer of that. Did you feel like you were kind of treading new ground with what you were doing? Uh, yes. I mean, that was certainly the aim. That's what I was going for. And when we started out, I didn't see many people around us who are doing that kind of thing. And it seemed to me a really obvious thing to graft a kind of traditional rock band onto a hip hop or house style backing. Yeah, there have been the Age of Chance in about 1986 who were a pioneering thing. Pop Elite itself, who everyone thought would be very influential influential on us. And, and they weren't. And I don't really know why, because they were ahead of us and they were doing kind of similar stuff i think it was much more kind of hip-hop than what we were doing but nonetheless you know it was a very similar idea and they mm. were uh, and they were ahead of us but that the band that really kicked it off for me the band essentially that i was trying to emulate was the shaman from right. about kind of 1987 maybe 1988 they provided the real blueprint for the way it should be yeah it was like a live rock band but it was very electronic sounds coming out all the time and that i thought was really, really exciting. I used to go and see them anywhere I could, uh, certainly in London. But I did feel that 
whilst there were people ahead of us and people I'd like to kind of emulate, we still had our own style and there weren't very many bands doing that anyway. You know, whereas had we wanted to be a kind of indie band, what was the thing at the time? Shoegazing maybe or C86 or, you know, or a heavy metal band. There were loads and loads of other bands doing that kind of thing. Um, whereas there, there could have been a handful maybe at most doing what we were doing. So yeah, I felt that we were, we were at the forefront of something, certainly. How much did you feel like you were kindred spirits with kind of what was going on up here in Manchester? Because I always listen to Jesus Jones and if not geographically, I think there's certainly a a musical relationship with some of the bands that were coming through in the early 90s period. Mondays would be the obvious one. Did you feel like you were kind of treading a similar path to the Manchester scene? Not in the slightest, no. Um, uh, I felt completely at odds with that that kind of thing. I was a fan of the Happy Mondays. I um, uh, really liked what they did. But it, it, sh- it should be kind of remembered that we were actually slightly ahead of all that kind of stuff. I mean... Yeah, much of our first album was written in kind of 1988. Doubt was written in 89, almost exclusively. And I think the whole kind of uh, Manchester thing seemed to be, we'd already kind of established um, uh, that the kind of sound we were doing. And I did feel that um, a lot of the Manchester scene stuff was really just get, get a beat uh, and just get the drummer to play a different beat, and there you are. You're part of the scene. And for me, it was it was the uh, the kind of el- the electronics at the centre of it, the technology, the, that that hip hop and house technology. That right. was the crucially different thing. It wasn't just you know, as I said, changing the beat a little, but it was it was a very very different way of of going about it. So I felt nothing in common with that at all. Even though I could like songs or like bands like the Happy Mondays, for example. You're never going to be able to set foot in Manchester again, Mike, with, uh, with, with comments like that. <laughs> well, you know, like, j- j- just in case I've, I ever need to, I, I, I should repeat, there was, there was nothing, nothing wrong with those bands, but I just felt nothing in, in common with it at all. I mean, you know, certainly I, I think it's quite interesting when you look back at the way the kind of media handled things, like the Stone Roses, for example. The only thing they ever do that did that was even close to that genre was Fool's Gold, which was a great single, you mm. know. But to put them as part of the Manchester scene, if a Manchester scene was about um, mixing dance music or rock music, no way. You know, they're an indie band. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But they they didn't kind of... It's funny that they, they they were they were there were many bands like that that were kind of here's a band that will shoehorn into this particular category even they don't even though they don't really fit so because of that kind of mismatch I didn't feel much in in, in common I think even if you didn't feel there was stuff in common there would have definitely been bands in that scene that were looking at your work and potentially drawing inspiration for that so I think there there might be more of a connection there than potentially you, you, you think there is in terms of the album doubt I mean when you listen to it in general with a few exceptions I think which we'll talk about in a little bit it feels like it's a pretty optimistic album in a world that at the time certainly had a fair few challenges does that reflect how the band was feeling at that time were you in an optimistic space yes I think it was a really, really exciting time personally for the band, for all of us. You know, this is, you've grown up all through your your teens and even slightly before wanting to be a musician, wanting to be a a rock star. And it was gradually coming true. You know, by the time Doubt was released, we'd been on top of the pops at least a couple of times, I think. So 
it was easy for us to be excited and, and enthusiastic and, and optimistic. There were uh, world events, you know, the, the Berlin Wall coming down, which inspired uh, right here, right now. And that kind of tied in with our own sense of optimism. So, yeah, in some regards, but um, again, back to the album being called out, there are other songs on it like Who, Where, Why, you know, why, why do I, Who Am I, Where Am I, What I Feel This Way, and a lot of the kind of darker songs as well. It's, um, I think, actually, in a way, the, the album, because it was it was written and recorded over quite a long period of time, it kind of spans the early excitement of things going well for the band and going mm. into a, a kind of a much darker phase, uh, which we then continued with Perverse. So it's kind of like a watershed, really. Half, half of it's on one side of the watershed, half, half of it's on the, uh, on the optimistic side of the watershed. In terms of that recording process, so it was written and recorded over a long period of time. What was the process like? when you got into the studio? Because it sounds like from what you were saying earlier that quite a lot of the songs were almost there, almost fully formed by the time you got to that stage. Yeah, they always were. That's the way that I worked. I like to have absolutely everything done. I'm I'm kind of a very organised and um, efficient person. And we still had the mindset of, of being a struggling young band. And as a struggling young band, you were paying God knows how many pounds an hour for studio time. You went in and you got it done absolutely as quick as you possibly could, you know, to save money. And that was st- that mm. was still the mindset. I mean, you know, I knew that even though the money was being fronted by EMI, ultimately we were going to have to pay for it. But more than that, it was just the way I like to work. I like to have it all done and just get done what need what needs to happen. But it was a very kind of fragmented approach because as i said it was done in several different sections and in and in several different ways by by which i mean i i remember a period of i don't know kind of 5 6 7 days something like that maybe where i did i went in and recorded um with various members of the band coming in at different times the bulk of the album but then mm. i remember doing at least two different versions of right here right now probably three actually one of which is the the version that martin phillips produced that, that was released then two of the singles international right thing and who who where why they were remixed so they after we'd done what we did they went away so it was the 18 months between kind of starting it and having it released you know a lot went on in that time there was no there was no one session. You go and you do three weeks, or whatever, and there's your album. Not like the first album, which is, and the first album sounds like a consistent piece of recording. Mm. It sounds like it was recorded in one three weeks stretch. Doubt wasn't. Doubt's all over the place, and it sounds like it. So, do you listen to the album and you kind of go, "Well, that's from that section. That's from that section." And do you feel that anyone would pick up on that other than you with those experiences? Do you think, from a consumer point of view, that you kind of have these different identities going on? Yeah, yeah, I think you can hear it very clearly. I mean, basically, the stuff that sounds good and professional and slick wasn't done by me, and the stuff that sounds pretty uh, amateurish and crappy <laughs> was done by me. So I, you know, I, I think it's clear to hear. <laughs> I want to focus on a couple of particular tracks of that's all right, and then I'd like you to talk to me about maybe some tracks off the album. Could be a favorite memory off the album. Could be something from the recording process. You've got free reign. You can pick what you like. But first off, I wanted to talk about the track Stripped, which, as I said earlier, the album felt fairly positive when I was listening back to it. And I understand the story behind Stripped was it was influenced by a message from a Romanian journalist who you'd met on tour. And he spoke to you the lyrics, everybody is hungry, everybody needs to know. Clearly, if that's the case... 
that's a message that was important to you and that you felt the world needed to hear? Uh, yeah, you know, it was um, it was actually when we there, uh, there were three bands, uh, us, Crazy Head and Skin Games, um, were invited to go and play in Romania um, as their kind of celebration for having come out the other side of a very dark period in Romanian history. It was their, their kind of opening them up, up. And one of the things they wanted to do was get rock bands in. And we were in there about a month after the revolution had uh, finished. And, you know, it, it should be we should be reminded that it was a very bloody revolution. Mm. I mean, there were bullet holes left, right, and center. It, it looked like a war zone in, in the in Bucharest. And our translator was telling me about all, the way that she had lived. And she was our age um, and a, a rock music fan. She's now actually one of the biggest promoters in Romania. She's done incredibly well within the world of music. Uh, and she, she, that, that line was from her. And there are all sorts of other things as well. Um, that, that inspired the, the feeling of that. So I guess in a way that was kind of, it was a damping down. It was the other side of the Berlin Wall has come down. Hooray, what a wonderful time. It, it was like, yeah, but at really quite some cost. And the future is not necessarily that certain. I think it took a long time for that translator, for example, to kind of move into a, a, a different Romania from the one that they'd, uh, they'd experienced for all of their lives in, in her case. Was that where the band were kind of all yourself was pulling inspiration from, from a songwriting point of view? Did it tend to be the world around you, what you're watching on the news, geopolitical events, or is there a lot of you from a personal point of view in this album as well? No, it, it is geopolitical. I've always found it really difficult to do me stuff. I don't like doing it. I don't think I do it very well. And so it was an obvious kind of um, distraction, I suppose, <laughs> to... Um, uh, to, uh, obvious diversionary tactic to write about geopolitical stuff. But, you know, I, I found that interesting and I could have an opinion about it. And I had some knowledge about it from, you know, always reading the news, etc. So I found it easier to do that than to do the personal stuff. And that's really the, the brutally honest version of, of why they're about what they're about. There's an interesting quote I found from you, actually, where you said... Um, I, I don't know whether it was on the re about the release of this album, actually, or whether it's something you've said at a later date, but you, the quote was, it's essential that pop music and rock music is very clear about the time in which it was made. Now, my assumption was you were talking there about an album, how it sounds, and the music has a kind of certain place in time. But actually, is it more than that? Is it about the music should reflect the world around it at the same time? Yeah, definitely both things. You know, I, I, want to, I, I felt that we were making... We consider ourselves rock musicians, but we were making pop music, which is, and the difference being pop music is much more kind of temporary and you can put it in a, in a specific point in time, which does make it quite awkward playing those songs 30 odd years later, I have to say. Um, but yeah, um, stylistically, the, the lyrical concerns, all very much about here we are now, this is what's going on. It, it's all kind of demonstrating that particular moment in time. Another example of that is in the track you've already mentioned that I want to talk about next, right here, right now. And rather than talking about the Berlin Wall aspects of that, I wanted to talk about the original demo version, because I understand the demo version, <laughs> the first version had samples from Prince and Jimi Hendrix in it. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Uh, um, that's exactly right. Um, I absolutely loved uh, Sign of the Times. The Towards the end of it, there's this kind of percussion stuff going on. That bass line was just absolutely fantastic. So I just, I, I took a, a one bar loop and recorded four minutes of it. 
and then just played stuff over it. I, I, it was, I had this kind of Velvet Underground Lou Reed type of guitar thing going on, which I did over the top. And then the middle section, those are the days when you could have guitar solos. And I thought, well, you know, I've always wanted, how cool would it be to, if, if I could play a guitar solo along with Jimi Hendrix? So I, I, I got <laughs> Jimi to help me out. Um, and the producer, who was, was Martin Phillips, had been stung really badly with sampling. He worked on a, with a band called The Beloved, who were great, and they got sued quite badly for nicking something. So he said, you know, I, I think uh, we'll, we'll better shift Mr. Hendrix off this one. So, um, yeah, both Prince Rogers Nelson and Jimi Hendrix got, um, got, got the boot from our version of right here right now. How did you make that call on samples then? Because there are samples on this album. Was it clearly, was it like a numbers game where you went, that's great, I really like it, but it potentially is going to cost us this and that one they're less litigious or it's going to or it's going to be easier to to get the rights for that one what was the what was the kind of deal in that decision making no it was our, our last album where it was the wild west where if you fancied it right. you took it at that point there hadn't been very many big legal cases and they were they were an oddity when they happened so for us uh, well for me writing it no i just use whatever i wanted to use next album and onwards um both the attitude changed and the fashion changed. It, it stopped being a, as cool to have obviously someone else's record on your record. So the, the fashion changed, but then also you, you were likely to get sued increasingly. There was an interview I read with you from about a decade ago, 2015 or so, where you said that you felt that this song had never been finished. Do you still reflect on it that way? Do you feel like there's work to be done? Yeah, um, and one specific regard, and that is the way I write. It, uh, when I when it comes to the words, it's, it's I have a tune first, and I'll sing any old rubbish words over the top, and then <laughs> then I'll start putting the words in. You know, but basically the 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 words for me are, ju- are just pegs to hang the tune on. And so you know, I was going through this, and I I couldn't come up with anything for the chorus, and I had right here, right now, kind of fitted well with it. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that there for now. But it's it's a pretty rubbish title, so I'll come back and change it later. Um, and I still haven't done it. I haven't got around to it yet. But, you know, one day, that day is coming. Are there no temptations when you listen back to this album or any of your work, in fact, because you were pushing these technological boundaries at the time and you were doing new things and obviously technology has developed over the last, uh, what, 30, 35 years, would it be, since you were kind of writing this album? Yeah. Is there no temptation to kind of go mm-hmm. and revisit and go, well, now I can use this or I can do this? Or actually, was it that challenge, the idea that you couldn't do what you were doing easily that was kind of the driving factor in the first place? Uh, no, I think in, you're right in the, the first time round, which is um, the, it's very tempting for me now to go and redo it. And in fact, you know, we were talking about the song Stripped earlier on, um, and that is uh, one track that in 2014, we, you know, I was saying to the band that there's actually... There's not a bad piece of, there's not a bad song in there. It's just, it's really disguised very, very well. So, you know, if we, we I'll rewrite it, redo it. And so we, we often now play an, a different version of Strip, very different version of Strip from the one on the album. But in general, it's not worth the time and effort. I, I kind of think, you know, they, uh, they were done uh, the way I wanted them to be done then. And we'll just leave them like that. That'll, that'll be fine. Pick me a highlight from this album, Mike. Like I said, it, it could be a musical highlight. It could be something from the process. It could be a memory that you've got when you look back at it now. 
Hmm, let's have a highlight. Um, da, 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 da. I, I really liked, I, I'll do a kind of stream of consciousness, I guess. I liked doing the video for Who, Where, Why. That was a really nice video with all the, the kind of the, the, the flowers and us kind of in the fields with these strange cardboard cutouts. I remember recording a version of Right Here, Right Now that um, that didn't make the album uh, in a studio in North London. It doesn't exist anymore, of course. And that was quite good fun because I remember just feeling like we were proper musicians now. We just roll into a studio and record. It was great. I also remember the uh, there's a hilarious episode. There's there's more to uh, a lot more to doubt than right here right now, and I'll uh, I'll, I'll come to that. But um, in America, when right here right now was taking off, um, the the record company kind of said, "Yeah, this is great, but we don't think it's right for the American market. What we'd like to do is get it in and remix it, uh, and that'll be it'll be perfect." And basically, what that is, it's the A and R man, the record company, saying trying to get his print on a success. It's the song's already going to do well, they can tell, but he wants to kind of get his footprint. So they sent me to New York for five days, something like that. We went into this top level studio with these top level guys and they took the original uh, track apart and rebuilt it exactly so that even the producer of the first one can't tell <laughs> which is their version which is our version um but i got five days in new york out of it so i was really happy about that let me ever think what else um <laughs> Yeah, I can remember writing Trust Me, the song that kicks the, kicks the album off. I remember sunny days like like, like today, because um, that, that, a lot of the album was written in the summer of, what, uh, 89, I guess. And just come out with the samples, sitting in this horrible little bedsit that Jen, the drummer, and I used to share in North London. And just coming up with these things, these songs on a little four-track recorder. Yeah, and just kind of the 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 naivety of it at the time, the, the kind of innocence and just the excitement of that period. You know, I just think sunny days, excitement, making music, you know, same as I've been doing three years before, but this time it was professional, it was real. You know, I was justified in what I was doing. It was just an exciting time, and there were quite a few tracks that would kind of uh, fall into that that era of writing. Anything else I can think of? Um, oh, yeah, I suppose International Bright Young Thing, writing that, I remember doing it, I got this fancy 12-track recorder. I always had working computers um, then as uh, now as then insist on you having some kind of title for the thing that you're putting in there. It can't just be untitled. So I always had to have working titles. And we were so frustrated at constantly getting just outside the top 40 whilst other bands that we thought were lesser bands would be number 36. And we weren't quite in the top 40 yet. An international Brighton thing, the working title that was hit. Because that that's what it was designed to be. I wanted that song to be a hit. It was written, there it is in the title. It's called Hit. It's going to be a hit. Um, thank God it was. But there's a few things. Um, with a little bit of run-up, I could probably come up with some more. Do you know what? It occurs to me now that I didn't need to have any questions for you at all. I could have just let you go and you could have talked all day. Um, but really nice to chat to you about your second album, Doubt. One of the joys of doing this show is that I get to listen back to music that I've not heard in a while. And I think this was a real example of that because I don't think a lot of the tracks off this album you hear every day. They're not played on the radio very often. They're not on television. And it was amazing to get back in and rediscover these tracks. So thank you very much for your time talking us through it. What are you up to nowadays? Have we got any projects on the horizon? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really write much these days, although we, we have a, a single, such as there are singles these days, that's out at the moment, called Still Smiling. Really what we do, I mean, we're, we're very aware that we are what, what's referred to as a legacy band. We're uh, kind of in the same way that I think of ACDC. You know, when I go and, when I used to go and see ACDC, it's like, if you arrive 10 minutes late, it's great because, you know, they play a song or two off the new album and then you'll get to hear Let There Be Rock. And I know that we're, we're in that same kind of uh, area now. So we, we you're not going to get our new album in its entirety at any of our gigs. We, we play the songs that people want to hear. And thankfully, a lot of the time, we're quite happy to play them as well. So we tour a lot. Now we're starting to tour a lot. I know we're doing the, the, the Shine Festival in, must be November. Australian dates are coming up for, I think, early next year. And this American tour that was supposed to happen this summer has been rescheduled to, I think, spring next year. So, yeah, a lot a lot of playing going on. We're, we're taking our legacy act on the road, even if I'm writing every kind of three, four, five, six years, something like that. Um, we come up with some, some more stuff, but uh, not so much that people think, oh, God. Not more stuff I have to wade through. Plenty to keep yourself busy. Yeah. Mike, thanks so much for your time on the Excess Long Player. Really nice to chat to you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. That is it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and you'll get the next episode as soon as it's ready. But if you're new to this podcast, don't worry so much about the next episode. Go and check out the previous ones because there's almost 50 of these episodes talking about 50 absolutely fantastic albums with loads of great people who have been kind enough to share with me their stories. Have a look back in the back catalogue, see what takes your fancy and give it a listen. And I'll see you very soon for another Excess Long Player. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.